Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder, you know, a founder that uh, has really experienced both sides of the table, you know, the founder side, the investor side. His company, actually, the, 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 the last one that he built has raised a lot of money, you know, between equity and debt. I mean, close to a billion, you know, if you put both, you know, in, in one go. So it's really remarkable. We're going to be learning today around really finding product market fit around fintech, building a team doing fintech, fundraising in fintech, and also how to think about investments when it comes to having a global mindset and perspective. So again, incredible episode that we have ahead of us, but without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Andrew Endicott. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. How are you doing? So originally born in Mississippi. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. So I'm from the the southern U.S. I I was born in Mississippi, grew up in Arkansas, uh, very much in the South, um, and went to went to college down here. I was a Razorback in in, uh, in school, um, but graduated kind of into the financial crisis, uh, like a lot of people who who went to to school and I did, uh, and graduated from college. And and um, you know I'd studied finance and accounting and kind of planned for a career on Wall Street, which which was uh, harder to come by uh, in 2008 and 2009. So it was a good, not as good a time to get a job, but a great time to, to go to school. I left and graduated college, went to Harvard Law School, uh, spent a bunch of money in three years uh, getting a law degree, but, but also met a lot of wonderful people while I was there. Out of all things, you know, for someone that studied finance and accounting and, you know, obviously now very much into business and, and startups, law school, where, where does that come from? That interest. Yeah. I, the, the, to be clear, I, it's, it didn't come from me liking to argue. I, that's, it's a, that's a reputation <laughs> of lawyers that I, that I, I kind of wish we didn't have. Um, I, I like, I like being able to zoom out and think about how things really work, th- thinking about things in systems thinking about things holistically. I think, I think being, being a lawyer, going to law school um, helps you think about poli- public policy and things like that, uh, that, that, are, that are, you know, maybe not immediately applicable uh, to, to starting a company or investing in companies, but, but uh, it helps you think, I think, in a good way. Now, it did, it did serve you because obviously you ended up going into um, working for a law firm after law school, and uh, you were there in the corporate uh, department. So, Obviously, when you're getting to see this deal making, things that don't work, deals that fall off, you know, through the cracks, whatever happens, what did you learn from on the deal making side? You know, when it comes to because obviously people are like, yeah, let's do a deal. And then when you go really into the details, you know, that's where deals fall apart. So what did you see? What were some of the patterns that you encounter while you were experienced there? Yeah, I think there's a lot. I I think the one of the things is that you know, I, I was mainly, I began my career almost entirely in M&A, uh, which the M&A setting is a little bit different than the kind of the, the investing setting. Uh, it tends to be much more confrontational, much more, uh, the, the, the terms you're trying to figure out are much broader because it's, it's kind of final for the most part. Um, so that, that's, that's some context around it. But I, I think one thing, when you start 
an M&A transaction, it's very hard to tell how it's going to end. Um, everybody can be very excited about a deal. The price can seem like it's a it's a great deal for both sides, and deals can still fall apart very relatively late um, into things just because they're so complicated. Um, and so you never quite know when something is going to finish um, or how it's going to end. I think that was that was an important thing around around uh, deal making. I think another one is the personalities really matter. Um, the the, uh, the the people, the main decision makers you have around the table, uh, they often have very large egos. They they um they they have a lot of pressure. Um, they have a lot of things they're optimizing for, and those things inevitably come into conflict. Um, and how they resolve those conflicts, um, if they do at all, um, has a lot of impact on the outcome of the deal. Um, and I think one of the other things I learned is, uh, you know, it's it's Boone Pickens. Uh, it's a quote he 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 has, but. But um, if if you want a, a deal real bad, you'll get a real bad deal. Uh, so having the ability to walk away is incredibly important. Um, and sometimes you need to to kind of illustrate that willingness to walk away, uh, particularly in the M and A setting. But I think in all all deal making, it's it's somewhat important to 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 kind of be able to have a backbone about what you're agreeing with. And a lot of times that comes through through uh, just saying no. Um, and so that, that's, I think I learned those things, uh, both as a lawyer and, and as a, as an investment banker and throughout the rest of my career, those things. And I wanted to ask you that too. I mean, obviously you've seen deal making from every side of the angle, no, of the people that are going to be sitting at the table. Uh, now the next chapter, uh, in your career was investment banking. You did that at Lazard, you know, really reputable investment bank. So how do you think that that deal making approach, what, how, what, what did you see that you couldn't believe that that was the case. You know, obviously when you were looking at it from the, from the lawyer's side, now all of a sudden you are moving, you know, uh, to another side of the table. What were some of the aspects of the deal making that you were like, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. I, th I think the, the, when you go from being a lawyer to being an investment banker, um, you're, you're a little closer to the, the core activity. You're, you're really there when price is being set when you're you're bringing to the table the buyers or, or the sellers um the seller you're usually not there's not multiple sellers most of the time um and so you 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 understand a little bit more kind of why those people are there than you do as a lawyer um i, I think one of the things that, that i found fascinating as a banker is how fast some things can really move and and uh, a good investment banker um, or really a good, good kind of a good seller of anything that you're doing, um, you do prioritize speed, um, and you because speed allows you to to get good prices, to get good terms. They create auction uh, dynamics for for sellers. Now it depends on the market conditions. You know, if you look right now, um, you can't you can't always create speed if you're a seller. Um, when 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 you're in when you're in a down market, it's more of a buyer's market. Um, and, and the, the, the balance of power shifts from sellers to buyers. Um, so that's where we are today. And times like that, if you try and speed a process along, you try and speed, speed a transaction too quickly, uh, it, you're actually more likely to, to blow it up. The, the, the transaction just won't occur. Um, so there's a lot of art and intuition um, at, at its core to, to run a to, to manage a transaction, whether you're a banker or you're the, or you're the company or the thing being sold itself, um, there, there's more art than science. 
And the pace and the speed often can have a pretty dramatic impact on the actual outcome. Uh, so that that was that was another another thing. And I think the biggest thing you learn as a banker is that that valuations, while there is some science to them, there's a lot of art. Um, and and um, you know what something is worth very much depends on who is who is looking at it. There's much of the the eye of the beholder effect. Um, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Valuation is too. Um, and you know, a, one one thing can mean many different things to many different people. Um, and so it's not just a purely mathematical exercise. Um, things, the valuations are very much relative to who you are. Um, and so I learned that. Um, and I, I think I the, learned a tremendous number of things that eventually be important in my career. I, you know, the, the being today, all of my time being in fintech, um, you know, I was working uh, not exclusively, but primarily with companies in the, the lending and, and, and uh, kind of non-bank financial institution world at, at, at Lazard. So I learned a lot about that. So at what point does the, you know, it's interesting because you're getting closer and closer to the people that are making the decision. All of a sudden until finally you are like on the founder's seat. So how does the experience or the ideal petal come, come knocking? How did that happen? Yeah, it came from a, a, a variety of sources. I think, you know, that's, that's the reality of kind of how, how businesses really come into being. I think usually there's, there's, you know, unless you're a single founder, um, I think it's a little simpler then, but but it tends to be more a little bit more of a mosaic uh, than just a, a bright kind of line of inspiration. But but um, you know, I, I think over the the period of time that I graduated from law school uh, to starting Pedal, and and um, I had a I had a number of friends that that had, that had, had kind of peculiar issues with getting access to credit. Um, you know, my 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 current you know kind of partner with with Gilgamesh Miguel. Um, had had this as well, and had to you get a secured card uh, to 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 be able to get access to credit coming from outside the U.S. Um, and my you know the my 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 co-founder Jason um, with with Pedal had had seen the same thing, um, and so you know this is not it's not a secret that 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 there are significant difficulties getting access to credit um, if you're younger, if you're from another country, if you're a divorcee, if you're a veteran. Um, nobody believes that credit scoring works perfectly in the United States. It's pretty, uh, it's, it's, it's very, very rigid um, how you build a credit history. Uh, it depends on relatively few activities. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 but it was primarily personal relationships and seeing, you know, issues that people had had building credit and getting access to credit uh, that really was the spark. And then also, Using the 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 knowledge that I'd accumulated um, through the years as as a as a banker working with um, you know kind of non traditional lenders people that are lending money to folks that that haven't had a lot of access to credit um, and also as when I was a lawyer I worked with some some companies some fintech businesses including Yodley uh, that were that were doing some interesting things around providing um, data for underwriting uh, that were really interesting so it, it was a lot of things and. And, um, you know, I think, but I think the, at the end of the day, Jason and I being both very interested in, in this segment of the economy was, you know, just as important as anything else. This is something, this is the kind of company we wanted to build. Um, and that, that was a big part of it as well. So then how, how did the whole idea of obviously experiencing this issue, seeing friends that were experiencing this too, how does it go from just having a 
chat, you know, with 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 a friend to all of a sudden you're like, let's give the notice here. Let's take action. Because I mean, here you are, a lawyer, you know, very corporate uh, career, a law firm, then an investment bank, a large investment bank. I mean, going from all of that, you know, the cushion, the cushion, you know, job and the nine to five and the nice paycheck to all of a sudden you're like doing your own photocopies and, uh, you know, no more assistance and nothing like that. I'm sure it was quite humbling for you. Yeah. Well, the, the, the life of a corporate lawyer and investment banker is, is far from nine to five or cushy, uh, in my experience, <laughs> for what it's worth. But, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, you talk to any founder of a company, I think that there is a, there's a common thread that you have an idea you have a, a um, you know, you, you see something uh, that simply compels you to build it. Um, and, you know, that was very much true for me, building Pedal. I think by the co-founders, that was also true. Um, but also, I think for Gilgamesh and, and starting the investment fund um, was true, too. The, I think you, the, the uh, people who become entrepreneurs, um, maybe not across the board, but for the most part, they see something that that kind of the the, the the they they don't have the ability to not do, um, and that that was the experience for me. It wasn't really an option uh, to to stay at Lazard and to continue doing working for other people and and doing these things. You know, I was learning a lot, but the the, the ability to build something new and to to kind of determine my own destiny was really really important. Um, and that, I think that that's that's at the end of the day that's what did it. It wasn't. It wasn't like a a rational calculation uh, because I think if you look at the stats, if you look at the 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 probabilities, if you rationally calculate it, you probably shouldn't start a company. <laughs> you right. probably you probably should stick to to your your uh, your, your your job where you're making good money uh, rather than take tremendous amounts of risk uh, to build something that doesn't exist. Absolutely. So for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Pedal? Yeah, so Pedal is a is a um, is a credit card company in the fintech space, um, where we we provide access to credit and and a credit card to people who have limited credit history, um, and we use what we call cash flow underwriting, uh, which is a where we're, we're getting access to bank account data in addition to bureau data and all the other traditional information, and we use that information to underwrite credit and to to approve people for a credit card uh that would otherwise have difficulty getting one. Um and it, the the product itself works just like uh, any other credit card. Um it's it's it um you know it's it's a Visa branded branded card uh where you have a you have a credit limit and you use it and you know pay back um at a, at a, at a on a certain schedule uh the amount that you borrow. Um and we we've developed a number of partnerships over the years. Uh, with lenders and with issuer banks and and payment processors and 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 other other important you know either intermediaries or partners to 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 make the product function um, and you know the ultimate goal is to to take a population that's that's you know anywhere between you know forty and a hundred million people depending on how you 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 arrive at the numbers uh, to help that population. Get access to 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 credit uh, to make their lives more more livable and, and, and you know to to 
to give them access to the, the same tools that, that the affluent and everyone else has always had. Um, and that, that's really the goal of the company. But we, we make money when, when we partner with, with when, we, when we have customers that use the product responsibly and pay us back. Um, and, you know, we grow the number of customers um, under the platform. At what point did you guys realize that you had product market fit with Pedal? Yeah, product market fit in fintech, and I'll talk a little bit about Pedal, but also, you know, I think more broadly, um, you know, I think that the the idea of product market fit can be a little tricky um, in in specific parts of fin, of fintech, not all of it, but particularly any time that you're taking risks, there there's always a little bit of a challenge of knowing whether you have it. Um, and so let, let me give you an example. When, when you're lending money, um, you know, you, you, it's very easy to find people who, who will take money from you, who will borrow the money. Um, that's, and if you look at the traditional metrics of product market fit, uh, which are, you know, kind of cost of acquisition and, and kind of ability to put something out there and grow and feel the market pulling you, um, those kind of traditional ideas around product market fit. Um, they don't always work so well um, with credit because you can you can be offering a product that the 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 market really demands, but that is very destructive to you from a unit economics standpoint. Um, so with Pedal, really the, the I think the the way that we we determine we had product market fit, there's no obvious point where it happens, but it's where when you are you are you know kind of growing the cohorts um, of the program of of the the platform. And acquiring customers um, at a at a cost of acquisition that's that's reasonable, uh, that fits within the kind of the the framework of what what you can do to be profitable, and you're you're charging a rate of rate of kind of a cost of 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 capital or an interest rate, the things you do to make money in a in a credit card that's market, um, and you're not seeing excessive indications of of um, kind of customer weakness. So you, you, you have to make sure not only do people want it, are you able to find those customers affordably? Um, it is the product flying off the shelves kind of in a, in a qualitative sense, but you also have to check to make sure that the customer that's using your product is the type that's going to have the right relationship. with you. Um, and this is, you know, this, this is true for pedal, but this is also true uh, for other asset classes like uh, insurance, insure tech, you're underwriting a customer. You're take. You're really taking risks um, in whether that customer is going to have the right behavior that you want. And and it's you know I think for for these kinds of businesses, it, it's act, it's more iterative over over a period lasting years for you to to really be sure. And you're never it's never perfect because you're always kind of straddling this line of taking too much or too little risk. Um, but you 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 determine it in the early days by by seeing that everything kind of lines up with how it should be. It's a little more prescriptive um, in how you, you you figure it out, both in lending and outside lending. And obviously, you know, for achieving product market fit, you need a great team. What about building teams in fintech? You know, whether it was with Petal and, and other stuff that you've seen, like how, how, how should people, you know, how they should think about building a team when it comes to fintech? Yeah, the, the I think I think this is true of any business um, in a complex industry, which I, I consider finance to be complex. Uh, but it's also probably true if you're operating in healthcare um, or you know maybe something from anything pharmaceutical, 
things like that, where there's, it's more than, you know, produce a product and sell it. You have regulatory considerations, you have kind of in the health tech, you have, you know, kind of the, the health of the customer and kind of all the, the, the variety of considerations that come in with that and privacy issues. Um, but in fintech, um, there's a perpetual challenge, uh, which we had at, at, at Pedal for sure, uh, but every fintech company I think has, where you you struggle to achieve the right balance of innovation on one end of doing things differently, uh, because if you completely copy what Chase does, you're not going to do anything special. Um, or if you can, if you're an insurance company, if you completely copy what what uh, Geico does you're not going to do anything special. You're also going to fail because you're not Geico. Um, so you have to innovate. But on the other, at the same time, you you have to also kind of respect the laws of the, the category, if you will, uh, respect the, the forces at work. Um, and so, you know, to do that, you, you have to bring in people that are experienced. Um, and so in, in many fintechs, that means hiring people that have worked at banks or have worked in in the payments industry and things like that. Um, in the world of insurance, it means hiring somebody who's worked in an insurance company. Um, and and there's always a, a huge tension in getting the people that that have experience to work well with the people who are more on the innovative side. Um, and so that's something that um, I think is always going to be iterative when you when you start a company. Um, and you're scaling it in particular. It's, it's not so much an issue early on. It's more it's more of an issue kind of as you grow um, that you you need to get these people to work together um, because they the, the 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 innovators need the experienced folks whether they know it or not, and the experienced folks need the innovators whether they know it or not. And the company needs them both. Um, and so you know it's important to have an environment where people respect each other. You know, there's a lot of mutual respect. Uh, it's important to give people the time to, 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 to kind of talk about their perspective. You know, when when you have multiple functions doing things, um, sometimes it's important to to have people sit in a room and fight things out. Um, that's something that I think is underappreciated about managing a culture and running a company. Is you you need to sometimes let conflicts really resolve themselves directly. Uh, conflict is not always bad. A lot of times, it's actually quite good to to work through a conflict in a in a in a direct setting and let people say what they really mean because the other person often won't understand it um, until they have that opportunity. Um, and and most importantly, a lot of times people simply will be incompatible um, with the organization you're building. Sometimes you will have somebody who you know has has come from a pure pure software role for their their you know for the the entirety of their career and they don't believe they just they just completely reject what somebody who has a full understanding of bank regulation um has to say about how to build a product that person's not going to be compatible um with the organization you're building and similarly you'll have somebody who has worked in in an industry for a long time and has very set and established ways of seeing how to build a business and they're not flexible and that person is going to be incompatible with the culture you need to create. Um, and as a leader, you have to know the difference between when when there's the right amount of conflict where people are learning and when you, you've really reached an impasse. Um, and, and making those decisions is very hard, um, but, it's, but it's really important. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And when it comes to fundraising, obviously fintech companies, they're capital intensive. Uh, you know, for Pedal, you guys have raised quite a bit. You guys have raised, uh, I believe it's half a billion on the debt side and then also 400 million on the equity side. So talk to us about raising capital in, in the fintech space. Yeah, the, the, in, in, in fintech, it's a big category. Um, so some fintech companies are more like pure software. You've got SaaS businesses that, that are going to really resemble more how, how SaaS business functions. And then you've got uh, businesses that have more of a balance sheet um, and that are, that are going to be valued and grow more kind of on the trajectory of, of kind of institutions that more resemble that. What what I would say is that I think um, when you're fundraising in fintech and when you're building a capital structure in fintech, uh, first of all, you need to understand what you you need to look like at scale. Um, and so, um, you know, for a software company, that's relatively easy. But if you're building a business that's going to have a balance sheet that's going to require debt capital um, or require, um, you know, kind of reinsurance and things like this on the on the other side of the equation. Um, you need to, to understand before you start um, kind of how those things are going to evolve. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, and you, you need to understand the, the proof points that you need to generate um, along the way for the different types of capital you need to raise. So typically, when you, when you start a fintech company, kind of regardless of what the type of business is, the first thing you're going to do is raise equity. Um, that's something that you're going to need to do. You raise a seed or a pre-seed round. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's relatively basic. And it's like the rest of the world of startups that that's where you begin. Um, but often in fintech, that's where the similarities kind of stop. Um, the, for many businesses, you then need to find a way to, you know, kind of, if you're in the, the lending world, you need to be able to find a way to access your inventory, which is really money. You need to find a way to access that money at a cost of capital that's not going to completely destroy your return on equity. It's not going to re- not going to cause dilution 
um, that, that cripples, you know, not only the investor's rate of return, but also your rate of return as a founder. Because at the end of the day, you you pay um, you pay for for dilution. You pay to raise raise equity capital, and equity capital is the most expensive capital that a business can raise. Um, so you need to figure out kind of how you can access that capital and when you need to access that capital along the journey uh, to to be successful. Um, and so typically, you'll have a seed round, you'll have a pre seed round. Um, and for for a lending business or or other businesses that have more of a balance sheet component, relatively soon after that, you often need to start building relationships uh, with with um, with asset based lenders and and with with um, with other types of institutions that can provide you capital that you either loan out or do other other things with, so that you you don't have to raise so much equity. Um, and so that that's 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 another thing you have to do is you have to think about kind of when to start doing this, but typically it starts earlier than you would think. Um, and also it has critical implications for how you, what the milestones that you're, you're wanting to, to, to aim for as a company um, and what, what those types of investors care about. So um, equity investors, you know, are much more, much more focused on growth um, than other types of investors, particularly venture capital investors are much more focused on growth. Um, even today, they're more focused on growth than other types of investors. Uh, debt investors are much more worried about security. Uh, they're worried about getting their money back um, in one piece. And so, you know, the when you're when you're raising a complex debt capital structure where you're going to have to raise debt, you're going to have to raise equity. You have to keep in mind um, that you have to make both sides happy um, because the equation doesn't work without one or the other. Um, to to build a business with the, with a with a balance sheet that's in the lending space, um, you you have to have equity because the the debt will never come unless you have equity capital to to kind of support it. And without debt capital, the business will never make sense because you will face such an extraordinary amount of dilution uh, that it, that it destroys any rate of return, either that you or the your 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 early round investors will ever ever uh, see. Um, and so. I think it's it's important to understand the types of capital and to be able to incorporate into your plan for how you're going to scale the business, how you can you know reach the KPIs, reach the milestones that those different sources of capital are going to require. And all of this boils down into why building in fintech is often very hard um, because the you you there's more considerations. Um, you know, simply around fundraising, if nothing else, but there's more consideration for you to take into account because you have different types of investors. For for most most startups, for for a company in e-commerce or AI or or anything like that, um, it's really simply about you know evolving from early stage investors to growth stage investors, which is a complicated thing in and of itself. Um, you know, you have to you have to understand kind of when the considerations shift from from product market fit to growth, and then uh, to profitability uh, when you reach when you reach growth stage investors. Um, but when you layer on the the balance sheet component of a fintech company, um, you got to think about profitability way earlier because not necessarily becoming profitable in the aggregate, but you know being able to show the right indications that you will be becomes important very very early on. Um, and you're just there's just more parties that you're trying to to keep happy. Um, and I think one last thing is that when you when you 
if you're in a business that that that's having to raise a complex capital structure, it's really important to have people on your team um, who you need to have senior people on your team who understand every part of, of that capital structure. And so, for a lot of these businesses, you'll need a you know a VP of capital markets or or some some role like that um, that 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 ends up being pretty instrumental um, in determining your strategy because they they kind of speak for the the capital market stakeholder that's eventually going to be at your business. Now, obviously, when when you get money, it comes with responsibilities, and especially on the equity side, most likely there's going to be a demand to secure a board seat from the people that are giving you the money. And when it comes to boards, you've learned quite a bit. You know, you had the opportunity too of being a board member of Encore Bank, which is one of the fastest growing banks. So I guess when it comes to um, board dynamics, you know. What would you say is the most important thing that founders that are listening should keep in mind? Yeah, I think the, the I said earlier in the MA context that the personalities really matter. Um, I think personalities really matter on boards uh, because at the end of the day, these are the, the individuals on your board are people that that have enormous um, influence over you know kind of what what you're gonna you know, kind of how, how your life's going to go. And we, we can, we can see this, you know, today or when the, this podcast will come out, but with the, everything happening with, with open AI, um, boards can, can create issues and boards can, can um, you know, the, the, their alignment with you is absolutely essential. Um, and, and on some level alignment often boils down to personality. It boils down to how you communicate, um, whether you have kind of interpersonal chemistry with, with people, um, is, is much more important than people give it credit for. Um, and so I'm, I'm very much of the view that it, it's essential um, that you spend a lot of time with people who are going to be board members, whether you're a board member or you're an entrepreneur or whatever it is, that you spend a lot of time together um, to, you know, before you're, you're really committing uh, to, to, to make that commitment with people. Uh, and this is true for investors as well as kind of independent board members need to do this too. Um, so I think personal, interpersonal alignment is really critical. Um, I'm a fan of of having you know relatively um, relatively small boards. I think you you need, if nothing else, you need to right size the board for where you are as a company. Now, when a company goes public, you, you're going to have a lot of people around the table. You're going to have a bunch of independent directors. You're going to have you know the audit committee member and all, all this kind of stuff, but when you're an early stage company, um, you know, for a while, you probably shouldn't have a board at all uh, because it's just, it's kind of, it's the wrong priority. You need to focus on launching a product or whatever it is you're working on at that point before you get product market fit. Um, but then even as you, you start to, to accumulate uh, additional rounds of capital, um, it's important that you, you know, you have the voices in the room that you need and you don't have more. Um, and so you want people with knowledge. You want people that that um, are going to help you anticipate the the most significant issues that are going to come to you in the future. Typically, those are going to be around kind of raising raising additional capital for the business um, or achieving liquidity for the business. Those those are that's that's typically the biggest thing that a board member is going to be involved in, with is helping you work through that. Um, and, and of course, I think it's helpful to have people who have operational experience. Uh, not not just because they're going to be able to give you advice, you know. You as an entrepreneur, you need to seek advice from a truly huge number of people. 
uh, because you're dealing with so many issues that you've never dealt with and that maybe sometimes nobody else has ever dealt with. Um, but the operating experience is really important because they can they can understand where you are. Um, and they they have a they have a they have a intuitive kind of grasp of what you're trying to prioritize and why maybe you're you're not dealing with some issues. Um, there may be you may have an operational problem in one part of your business and it's simply not important um, the, to, to to your broader you know immediate strategic goals. An operator, somebody with operating experience, is going to probably have a little more understanding that sometimes you let you let fires burn in a business, whereas somebody who's only dealt with very mature companies is not going to understand that. Um, so I think, I think having, having people who, who've either been operators or have had experiences that give them, you know, the, the, the awareness of what operators deal with um, is important. And you, you don't want to have a bunch of people that, that something you want to avoid is, is you don't really want individuals that, that have that have not had a broad range of issues, a broad range of experiences. Um, you need people that are pretty balanced and that have seen a lot of different things. And not saying they need to be super advanced in their career. You know that they, they you can have people that are, that are in the middle stages of their career. They're going to be great board members, but they need to be flexible people that don't get hung up on you know something from one individual perspective. Um, that's that's gonna that's gonna divert your attention. Uh, because you, at the end of the day, one of the biggest problems is you got to take a board seriously. When they ask you questions, you got to answer them, um, and you, you you it takes a tremendous amount of time uh, to 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 really faithfully answer the the questions and concerns they have. And if you're getting the wrong questions, if you're getting if you're having somebody paying attention to something that that at the end of the day doesn't matter, um, it's highly destructive. Uh, to the 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 path of business and and your your time as an entrepreneur because at the end of the day time is really your most valuable resource when you're when you're an operator when you're a founder um, and you have to have people that are not gonna not gonna abuse your time or or waste it. Now, when it comes to um, to you and 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 obviously to the way that you decided for the next chapter, I mean, eventually you decided to go to the other side of the table and now you're running Gilgamesh Ventures, but how did that happen? Because here you are in an absolute rocket ship, you know? How do you decide, hey, it's time to uh, turn page here? Yeah, I, so I, I've spent the, you know, much of my adult life, I've been a pretty active investor. Um, going back to when I was in college, I was pretty active. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, have, I don't know my exact track record, but, but a pretty active, you know, investor in public equities and I spent a lot of my time in, in in various things in college doing that. Um, I took the CFA, you know, pretty early before I went to law school, took the CFA too before taking the bar, which was probably the, the, the craziest thing I've ever done, doing that a month before the bar exam. That was, it was, it was, uh, I'm not sure I planned that one out that well. <laughs> but, but I, I've always had a, I think part of this is interpersonal. I've always, I, I've always, I think, seen things like an investor. I've always had a view that at, at, at kind of the terminus of my career, I would I would be an investor in an investment capacity um, at some point, and so it's something that I've always done and been focused on. But but um, you know, I think the naturally when you're when you're a founder, 
Um, you're, you're close to the fundraising process. Um, you got a lot of curiosity about the other side. Um, so I think that's something that everybody has. And it tends to be the case that founders tend to be pretty active investors um, in other companies. That's not something that's unusual. I think it's a little less common today than it was a couple of years ago. But, but um, you know, I, I was no different. And, and relatively quickly after starting Pedal, um, I started, I became a pretty active investor myself. Uh, now, granted, I didn't have that abundant of, of, of funds to do it. So it happened at a pretty small scale. But, but um, you know, almost immediately after, you know, maybe not immediately, but after a couple of years of pedal being up and going and us achieving success, I started actively investing in people in my network and, you know, folks that I would meet in the fintech space. Um, and mainly doing so with with a a friend of mine that I've 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 uh, I've, I've 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 known through you know through a, a variety of kind of acquaintances for a long time Miguel Armaza, um, who is my current partner, um, my my co-founder with Gilgamesh. He and I started investing together, um, and that began organically. It wasn't something where we had some grand strategic plan uh, to you know to 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 create an asset manager or anything like that. Um, but we started investing together. Um, you know, pretty early in the the journey with Pedal, and and it's something that he and I both enjoyed. And over time, it took on a life of its own, um, and started investing outside the U.S. You know, really de- developing some expertise or maybe a reputation to, to you know for investing in fintech companies. Uh, given you know his background and my background as a as a as a fintech entrepreneur, um, and and it continued to take on a life of its own, and then. You know, ultimately it became it became complicated enough that that uh, it became very clear that we needed to raise a fund if we were going to continue doing it. Um, and so we made that choice. Um, you know, before the pandemic really really arrived, um, and started investing our our first fund. And it became very clear to me that this is really what I was built to do. Um, I, I I I I like being an operator, and I've, I have had the the good fortune to to do it. Um, and, and have 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 success in doing so, but I think my my mind is is really that of an investor. Um, and so, you know, when we at the end of 2021, we raised a pretty large amount of capital. That was a good time for me to step away and focus on 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 the fund, um, and which I did. And you know, today we're you know we've invested in 33 companies at, at, with Gilgamesh, and and uh, we're 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 investing out of our second fund at this point. Um, and, and, um, you know, investing, you know, really in the future of finance and, and how finance is going to work in the, the next decade or two, um, the companies that are going to define that. And we're, we're doing that in the U S but we also, uh, we're active investors in, in Latin America and Canada, um, and really try to bring a global lens to kind of FinTech and, and, and what the future of the category is going to be. Um, and we invest early, so it's something that that's near and dear to me, having been an entrepreneur, um, you know, and helping other people, um, you know, to take that first step and build build the you know the huge businesses of the future. So now, obviously, you've seen a lot. You know, you have invested in in thirty plus companies, as you were saying, and and raised you know tens of millions to invest in them. You've also been a founder. Uh, you've you've seen everything. So if you had the opportunity, let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I was to bring you back in time, you know, perhaps that moment that you were in Lazard and you were right about to give your notice. Okay. And let's say you're able to have a chat with that younger Andrew and you can tell that younger Andrew 
one piece of advice for launching the business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I think the, the, the thing for me is it's important to understand what you have done. Uh, it's important to use the knowledge uh, that you've accumulated, um, you know, in, in the things that you've been been doing, the people you've been around, um, and the expertise that you've generated. But the thing that will ultimately determine whether you're successful is the intensity and and um, you know, kind of aggressiveness with which you continue developing. Um, you know, a lot of people talk, talk about things compounding over time. I think I, I am one of these people that believes that learning compounds. Um, but that doesn't just mean starting early. Starting early is important. You know, starting saving money means that it compounds further. But it, it also means that you have to keep doing it. Um, and I, I, I'm very, I'm very uh, convinced that, um, you know, the expertise exists and people do know what they're doing. Um, but to, to really know what you're doing, you have to really approach, you know, the important things that you do um, with the, the kind of the mind of a student, um, the, the, the mind of someone that, that's not satisfied with their understanding, with the, the intellectual humility that, that you don't necessarily know everything um, about kind of whatever thing you're doing. Which is difficult because the when you're in any position of importance, be it an investor, founder, whatever, executive, um, you're getting paid because you know things, and the you're you're there's there's a reaction that you need to exude, you know, confidence and certainty and all these things, and those are important. You need to do those things, um, but if, simultaneous with that, you have to question whether you actually know what you're doing um and and find you know constantly tackle you know those places where you you, you don't have you know within yourself you don't have total confidence or total, total certainty um that you do know everything um because at the end of the day i also believe that there's very few people that are true experts of what they're what they do there's a lot of people that sound like experts um in that that um you know say the right things and and um can be very convincing and and all of that but but the to get to the point where you actually know things and you can you can actually see around corners and you can really make wise decisions that are not influenced by what's popular or what's what 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 kind of everybody else thinks is the right decision but but where you can really make the right decision requires a lot of time and effort in really deeply understanding what you're doing um, and trying to, you know, avoid the thought that you, you already know. Um, I think, I, I, I think that's the thing I would want to tell myself. I try and think about it all the time now. Um, and I try to take the viewpoint that, that you, you should always be reading. You should always be learning um, about what you're doing um, because that your, your success 10 years from now is not just what you've done to date or what you're going to do is what you're going to learn um, in the next 10 years. Absolutely. So, uh, Andrew, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah. Like, like so many folks, I, you know, I use social media and, and uh, maybe not all of it, but, but um, also email. I, I, my, my email is 
Andrew at GilgameshVC.com. Um, hopefully that people can figure out how to spell it. Um, a little, little Googling can probably help, but, um, yeah. And then LinkedIn, I, I, I tried my best to, to, uh, to, to, to be responsive to, to things I see on LinkedIn and, and, uh, it's helpful if it doesn't look like, a an automated message. That's what it's, what I'd probably emphasize, but, but, um, yeah, I, I think that that's the main ways and, and, you know, or just, if you know somebody who is connected to me, have them nudge me and tell, tell me to respond, uh, that tends to help too. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, absolutely. I, an honor for, for me too. And and um, I'm, I'm really, really honored, really flattered to be part of this. And hopefully, you know, so, so one of the things that I've said ends up being helpful to somebody. So thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.